Hey now, and happy Thanksgiving. We are getting over, and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. Dada, with episode 522 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again, and it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We are here to break down everything that happened over the last week in the world of NXT and AEW. Now, we do have an absolutely loaded show for you, and it is Thanksgiving. I'm taping this right in the middle of the three NFL games. I have a big feast waiting for me later, so we are not wasting any time on today's show. Allow me to remind you off the top that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about Please remember, look, especially on Thanksgiving, leave a five-star rating for us across Apple Podcasts and Spotify on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, highlights, analysis, all that good stuff. And please remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up. You will get bonus audio, the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling, exclusive news posts, and a lot more. Again, on Thanksgiving, what better way for you to say thanks than to support your friends at Getting Over the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, yours truly, Vintage Chris Vanini, and of course, the show as a whole. Now, as I mentioned, we have a lot to get to today, and it is Thanksgiving, so I don't want to waste your time, don't want to waste my time. I just want to get right to it. We're going to kick off with NXT because we only have two hours to discuss with NXT. In terms of AEW, we actually have a lot of stuff to go over, both from Collision and Rampage last week. We have an entire diatribe that I need to drop on you about the Continental Classic, And of course, I do have a second look at AEW Full Gear, as I promised. There will be timestamps in the episode description, so if you only want to hear AEW or NXT, you can go find the timestamp and jump around. But as always, I hope you listen to the entire show. We're going to start with NXT, and let me just simply put it like this. It was a taped show that felt like one. Probably one of the worst episodes of NXT this year. That's not to say it was objectionably bad, but it was boring with numerous matches that disappointed, and an overall lack of creativity that is so uncommon weekly because NXT generally is the most creative wrestling show on a week-to-week basis. Many weeks, it's the most entertaining show. This one came across mailed in almost as if they did not initially prepare to tape the show, but decided like 48 hours out, you know what, we should tape two shows tomorrow. And look, We've been heavily praising NXT here for the vast majority of 2023, so shit happens, okay? It's just that, unfortunately, it happened on Tuesday. So let's go ahead and break it down. Women's Championship, Lyra Valkyria against Zaya Lee. Right as Lyra entered first, Zaya caught her blind with a roundhouse kick, and got, she ended up getting tended to by trainers. The match was delayed until the main event. She really should have drank that tea last week. Uh, Valkyria was icing her head later, refusing to call the match off. Lyra caught a kick flipping Zaya for a nice release German suplex pretty much early in the match. They had a notably strong counter sequence with Valkyria avoiding Lee's kick and hitting one of her own before finally debuting a good frickin' finisher, like a swinging fireman's carry Mishinoku driver for the win. I'm sure you can tell by the tone of my voice how excited it made me for Lyra to actually have an impactful move that can end a match 
as opposed to that really stupid kick or the perhaps even stupider splash. I'm not sure why it took so long, but boy, oh boy, am I glad it finally arrived. I like it. I like it a lot. I'm happy. I'm pumped is what I am. This was a second straight solid match for Zaya coming out of her Raw battle with Becky Lynch. As I said last week, and again on the WWE show, there has been a lot of build for Zaya character-wise only for her to lose consecutive major matches. The question is what happens to her next. She needs to get involved in a solid program that she can actually win. Otherwise, she's going to go from getting heavily featured to lost right back in the shuffle. As for Lyra, the finisher stood out. But overall, it was a solid, it was appropriately short for her first feud as NXT Women's Champion. Overall, one of, if not the best part of NXT on Tuesday night. Baron Corbin voiced over a video package for Ilya Dragunov that focused on him sacrificing everything for his family and living a basic life while training to be the best at his craft with all of his loved ones waiting for him in Germany. By contrast, Corbin talked about having generational wealth himself and getting to see his family every day. He said his goal was to burn his past and culminate 2023 by becoming NXT champion. It was excellent. One of the best parts of NXT as well. This was like 1A and 1B. Clear juxtaposition between both guys. And having Corbin do the voiceover entirely himself was a real nice touch. Carmelo Hayes fought Josh Briggs in the men's Iron Survivor qualifier match. Trick Williams told Melo backstage he'd be there ringside because he wasn't sure whether Jensen would be ringside with Briggs. Melo had an attitude about it. Twice told him, I want to do it solo, but they still dapped up before he left for the ring. Briggs later told his crew he wanted to do it on his own as well. Mello hit fadeaway inside and a simple upright splash outside. Briggs bounced him off the ropes outside for a lariat, then yeeted him over the announce table. There were some clunky parts before Mello pulled out a scissor kick that really popped Booker T on commentary. I'm pretty sure that's the first time Mello's done the move. Mello ate a choke slam and got turned inside out on a boot for a false finish. He came back with a code breaker, but Lexus King distracted as he was going for nothing but net. Briggs caught him flying with a lariat and hit a nice moonsault for a big man and got the one, two, three in a clear upset victory. So look, let's just be straight on this. The outcome worked in storyline, but putting Briggs in this match instead of Mello doesn't make the match better. And it is a big signature match on the final premium live event for WWE and NXT of the entire year. Briggs was fine here. I've seen significantly better singles matches from him. And he's someone, let's not forget, who I've been talking about as being far better than Jensen by comparison and thinking he should get a singles run. So I'm not saying I'm upset that he had this opportunity. It's just, I truly thought that a match between these two, even with a schmaz finish, let's say, I still thought it would be better than it was. And that for me was disappointing. I probably went about 3.25 stars. I usually don't uh, do a grade for a TV match if it's under 3.5, but just to give you a context of what I'm talking about. Briggs was celebrating later backstage when Tiffany Stratton randomly gave him props. Then Jensen and Fallon Henley wondered what the hell that was about. Good question. I guess we'll see next week. Malik Blade and Idris Anofe fought Angel Garza and Humberto Carrillo. Garza avoided a 450 splash with Carrillo catching Anofe rolling into a powerbomb. They finished him with an assisted pop-up PK for the win. Legitimately one of the worst finishers I've ever seen. You have two uber athletic guys who each have above average singles finishers of their own. You can easily combine them into Garza hitting, I forget what it's called, but the angel's wings where he drops them backwards and then Creo doing a top rope move in succession. And that's the finisher to win a match. 
and instead you do a pop-up kick to the chest? I mean, I don't get it. These guys have been showing out since they returned to NXT. This was easily their worst and most boring match. No idea what anyone was thinking the way this was booked. It was actively not entertaining. And again, I'm not someone who sits here and criticizes these guys. I've been pushing for them to get an opportunity at the NXT Tag Team Championships. But this for me, yeah, it just it just didn't make sense. Uh, D'Angelo family celebrated with their title at the Italian restaurant. Uh, Tony was saying that they aren't done with Chase U, which is unfortunately dug themselves deeper into a hole. Adriana or Adriana, I don't know how they're saying it, Rizzo, who is the woman that they're with now, she did a toast. Her accent remains awful. Like she's doing an Italian accent, but a male Italian accent as opposed to a female one. It doesn't make any sense. Sounds ridiculous. Tony collected his payments. They walked outside only for Garza and Creo to blindside them with an attack in the parking lot. This was fine. Nothing overly noteworthy. It did lead to a tag team title match getting booked for next week. And look, I've said this. I want Garza and Creo to win these titles and reestablish the importance of the tag team division in NXT. But the way that match went with Blade and Inofe, and then this attack, and then already getting a title match next week, I can't expect it to come. We later got a melodramatic video package recapping the Chase U scandal with nothing else gleamed from it. Andre Chase will apparently break his silence next week. There's really not much to say about it because nothing developed rather than a video of the pieces being put together. And again, still no details. So next week, let's assume that we're going to finally get that. Thea Hale fought Blair Davenport in the Women's Iron Survivor Qualifier. Thea was nervous backstage before the match given the Chase U situation, but JC Jane totally had her back without any ulterior motive. Thea got distracted by the student section not cheering for her. That gave Blair an opening for a knee to the face, I think it was, and a win. Disappointing match, both because of the length and the work. I think it was four minutes. You have Thea Hale and Blair, two women who should be massively over or getting over. You're having them do a four-minute match with a distraction finish from a crowd. I mean, for a qualifier, for a a match of this importance, the Iron Survivor, it just did not at all live up to expectations. Massively underwhelming, and the crowd didn't give a shit either, which was perhaps even worse. Uh, We had a Heritage Cup match, Noam Dar defending against Chad Gable. This opened NXT with all faction members ringside. Gable got kicked by Oro Mensa in the corner, with Dar hitting the Nova Roller to lead 1-0 in round two. They beat the shit out of each other in rounds three and four, only for Gable to immediately hit Chaos Theory to even at 1-1 at the start of round five. The women argued on the ring apron, distracting the referee, with Dar catching Gable blind after the bell. Gable hit like a flip over DDT slam. Dar countered a moonsault with boots, but Gable caught his foot for an ankle lock, with Dar tapping moments after the clock hit zero to end the match with a draw and Dar retaining the cup. There was some late comedy after the bell with Lash Legend, disgusted by Otis, who taunted her. Last week, I said Gable needed to win. I did completely forget, just being honest, that the match could end in a draw with Dar retaining. It was probably the right booking, unless you're going to do a big program with Gable. Obviously, Dar cheated just to tie, but working with Gable only helped him. The commercial came during one of the best parts of the match, which was frustrating, but it was a fun opener. Probably the match of the night. So 3.5 stars B. You could give that same grade to Lyra and Zaya, something similar. They were easily the 1A and 1B best matches on the show. And again, this Heritage Cup was one of the three best segments, along with the Corbin voiced over video package and the women's title match. Wes Lee said he sees red when he looks at Dominic Mysterio because he's a piece of shit and has the North American Championship. 
He said his title reign helped get fans behind him and demanded one more shot at deadline. Dom came out talking crap, saying he's made the title more relevant with Wes shooting back that Judgment Day is responsible for him still being champion. Dom said Wes could get a shot if he faces and beats three other former North American champions next week, which Lee accepted. It was later announced those would be Cameron Grimes, Bronson Reed, and Johnny Gargano, which makes that a banger match for next week. That's going to be a banger. But this was not a great segment by any means. Wes was mediocre. Dom was poor. Neither of their promos was received well. And again, Wes's character makes zero sense since he's returned. I presume Wes is going to pin Grimes next week. And while that match is exciting, I'm just not feeling the storyline or Wes's character at all. You had Dominic running hot. You had Wes running hot as a guy who was a pure babyface, turning tweener, possibly turning heel. He goes away for months. He comes back and he's a babyface again. And Dom doesn't have Ripley by his side. His reign has kind of slowed down a little bit. It used to be pretty intense where he was defending every week. So both of them need an injection of energy and life. And there's still plenty of time until deadline, don't get me wrong. But if they're planning to do a change there, I don't know that that's the best decision on all the other opportunities they had to take the title off Dom. Eddie Thorpe fought Charlie Dempsey. Thorpe caught Dempsey in a pinning combination for the win after a couple of minutes. All three heels attacked immediately with Dempsey stretching his midsection and shoulder. No faces came to save. This did nothing for me whatsoever. Von Wagner arrived at Mr. Stone's house for dinner with those store-bought like cosmic brownies and a Tupperware. The whole family was dressed nice, but he was wearing jeans and a tank top. The kids looked and ate like mini Vons and they stared at his scars. Wagner said he would take care of their bullies for them. I mean, look, this was terrible in every possible way. I'm not sure what else to say, really. I hope it's leading to something that's more exciting. Like, okay, yes, you have, and I don't say this because of his looks. I say it because of the way he acted in the segment. You have like a Neanderthal sitting at a family dinner. They're all nice and proper. He's not. And why is that supposed to be entertaining? None of them can act. I mean, the wife actually, I don't even know if it's actually Mr. Stone's wife, but let's make believe it is, or even if it's not, it doesn't matter. It's an actress. She did the best acting out of anyone in this entire scene. It just didn't work for me. Uh, Ariana Grace got a promo package speaking to herself in the mirror about being a beauty queen who was the victim of being attacked by Carmen Petrovic. She said she was disgusted by the NXT universe supporting it and that they should go seek medical help, but they should shower first because they stunk up the performance center last week. The opposite of the Von Wagner, Mr. Stone segment is my take here. This was phenomenal. She totally understands the character and taking a shot at smelly fans always works unless it's like cheap heat. This was not cheap heat. This was straight up in the middle of a taped promo package and it completely worked for her gimmick and her character. Loved every bit of this. And folks, that's it from NXT this week. Like I said, it was a two hour show. There wasn't really much to dive into. It was taped. So next week I'm expecting a lot of developments and I have no doubt that we're gonna have a much probably stronger and more positive opinion of NXT coming out of Thanksgiving. With that, let's move over to AEW. Before we get to everything that happened across Dynamite, Collision, and Rampage that did not specifically have to do with Full Gear, because we already broke that down on the AEW Full Gear Instant Analysis podcast. If you happen to miss that, go back in our archives. It's two shows back, and make sure you listen to the Instant Analysis of AEW Full Gear. But what we're going to do right now is do a quick AEW Full Gear second look, and then we're going to go ahead and talk about Dynamite Collision and Rampage. The primary purpose of this second look is for me to correct some match grades, because as I told you uh, when I did the match recaps and the grades, 
I was, it was immensely distracting with football happening at the same time. Very difficult to watch some of these matches 100% in totality and make sure I fully understood the match story and everything that was going on. So I do actually have five matches that I briefly want to address, four of them in which I'm going to adjust their grades. The first is the AEW Championship MJF against Jay White. I initially, I believe, said 3.5 stars uh, B on the instant analysis. I'm downgrading that, I'm sorry, 2.75 stars C+. My distractions with football had me overvaluing the major spots I was able to look up and see, and I did not focus enough on the actual match story and the selling. It was patently ridiculous the way that MJF would sell the knee crazily, then do a move that required full use of his knee, jumping off the top rope, doing a tope cutter outside the ring, and then as soon as he would land, he would immediately sell it crazily after. It's like some of those things you just can't do if your knee is hurting you that bad. And we've already gone over the booking problems. This is the biggest adjustment I have ever made in a match grade. I think the most I've ever done previously is maybe half a star. Usually it's only a quarter in one direction or another, but this is three quarters of a star. It's just too much. And that's my bad for missing it in the moment. 2.75 stars, B+. Hangman Adam Page against Swerve Strickland in the Texas death match. I gave a 4.5 on the show. Rewatched the entire thing. Bell to bell. It is 4.75 stars, A+. Truly an exceptional match. I had a feeling I was going to go higher, and I did. International Championship Orange Cassidy against John Moxley. I gave it a four live rewatch, 3.75 stars, B+. I just didn't think it was truly excellent, and that is my barometer for being four stars or better. AEW Tag Team Championship, Ricky Starks and Big Bill, LFI, FTR, Kings of the Black Throne. I gave it four stars, A- minus on the show. That is the one I am confirming. I felt the exact same way watching it a second time. And lastly, the Golden Jets against the Young Bucks. I gave it four stars on the show. It just was not an excellent match. 3.75 stars, B+. So three downgrades, one staying the same, and one upgrade for Hangman and Swerve, which completely deserved it. Clearly the match of the night. One of my favorite matches of the year. And that's despite there being a few moments in that match, one of which you know in particular, that I did not enjoy personally. I also got a DM from the Arb King at the Arb King. Would you do a ranking of potential candidates to finally take the title from MJF? Before full gear, I would have said Wardlow. Gives you the chance to make a new top guy. He used to be crazy over, brings the story full circle with Wardlow being the last guy to dominate MJF. And then from there, his career goes to shit while MJF elevates to the top spot. But after last night, I believe the right guy is Will Ospreay and you do it at Wembley Stadium. Probably the biggest main event you can do on the biggest stage. You potentially own England after that as your territory would give off Bret Hart, British Bulldog vibes. So let me just first address that last part. They could put Ospreay over MJF at Wembley. Sure, they're not gonna own England because of that. I mean, I don't, that's not how that works. Uh, but the reasoning in your two choices is perfectly sound. The problem for me is that MJF almost certainly has to lose his title before All In, which is more than nine months away. So that eliminates Osprey because you would really only do that at All In. Then regarding Wardlow, the guy has zero personality. At least AEW is not allowing us to see that he has personality. They've successfully made him look powerful, but they have not developed him into anyone that is anywhere near close fans giving a shit enough about to be the world champion of the company. They would need to do a lot of work on Wardlow to get there. And even though Samoa Joe is challenging soon, 
there's questions about whether it could be him. We'll talk about that a little bit later. So I'll go backwards from three to one with White and Omega, Jay White and Kenny Omega, eliminated as challengers because they've already lost clean to MJF. White lost to a one-legged MJF who lost already on that same show despite having people helping him and weapons helping him. So yeah, he's certainly not going to beat him for the title. But I would put Osprey third on my list, to your point. Adam Cole would be second. They have a long-term storyline. Cole has always been better as a heel. But again, the problem with Cole, he's probably out for many more months still. So that leaves my number one option, which is Swerve. And honestly, it's a no-brainer for me. The guy just beat Hangman twice, including at his own game in a Texas death match. There is no one else that has a resume on par with that right now, unless you throw in like Brian Danielson or John Moxley or someone like that. Swerve is also the hot hand, and he has a ton of momentum right now. He's already stated he will be the first black AEW champion, and he'd have a chance to fulfill it. He also is a truly hated heel, whereas MJF is a massively over babyface. It would also freshen up the entire product, which whether you believe it's cold or cool or lukewarm, it's not hot, and it has grown stale to a significant degree. Swerve would easily be the best choice to freshen up the product. Whether Tony Khan realizes that or not, we'll see. He certainly does not seem to in the immediate future because Swerve is going to be going and doing something else, whereas MJF has a title challenge coming up already for World's End. So let's go ahead and discuss the thing that Swerve is about to get into, or actually started getting into on Wednesday, and then we'll go ahead and talk about Dynamite, Collision, and Rampage. So as we discussed last week, AEW announced that it is holding the Continental Classic, a G1 Climax-style round-robin tournament, 12 competitors, two brackets of six each. We were largely praiseworthy of it last week, but our key criticism was it seemed all for naught because nothing was on the line for the winner. My expectation was it would be a title shot or a contract or something to that end. Nope. Let's get to what happened both at full gear and then before and during Dynamite because I definitely have a lot to say about this. So during full gear, Eddie Kingston announced that he was putting his ROH and NJPW strong titles on the line in all of his Continental Classic matches. He also said there would be a Continental Champion crown at the end, meaning the winner would be a Triple Crown champion. First of all, the way Eddie explained this was massively convoluted. Second of all, it is completely unnecessary in every respect for him to give up his titles in this scenario. Third of all, my thought at this point was the Continental Classic might get a title like the Owen does or the Greatest Royal Rumble, just a trophy that's actually a belt. Nope. So this announcement could have been done far better. Let's get that clear. What should have happened is that Tony Khan should have said, I or a committee including me will be weighing all entry requests to the Continental Classic. Anyone currently holding a championship, whether they are in AEW, Ring of Honor, or New Japan, if they enter, you are required to forfeit your title. Then he could, at that point or later, announce the winner of the tournament as a Triple Crown champion, 
with his name going to the titles that were relinquished in order to get into the field. That sells the viewer on the entire tournament being prestigious, not just because AEW says so, but because champions are literally sacrificing their titles to get an opportunity to compete. Instead, we had Kingston doing it of his own accord with no one forcing him. And you have this immensely convoluted mess. And really, either way, the fact that AEW believes that a brand new made-up title plus the ROH title, which actually has history behind it, and the New Japan Strong title, which is like the sixth most important title in New Japan right now. It's one of their American titles, meaning United States promotion. So it's not even one of their Japanese titles. I guess it's the main title of that brand, the main title of the Ring of Honor brand, but not the main title of AEW. In fact, not even a title that even exists right now. If they believe that constitutes a true triple crown, I mean, they're kidding themselves. It's literally a joke. Plus, there's the suspension of disbelief with Kingston. Why the hell would Eddie give up two titles out of nowhere for no reason whatsoever? And with the ROH TV title already vacant, why would you not just include that one as opposed to taking the ROH title, which is the top title of that brand? So now ROH is going to have a TV champion and a pure champion. It's going to have a tag team champion and a six-man champion, plus a women's champion, but no main title because that person will now be a quote-unquote triple crown champion with one so-called title, a brand new title, and a fifth or sixth rate NJPW title. I, I don't see how that makes any sense. Let's not forget that beyond all of that, this is another men's singles title for AEW, which will now have four, including the AEW title, the international title, and TNT. Plus, you have the FTW title, which obviously is a gimmick, but still, that's not even addressing that they will have separate international and continental titles. I mean, they literally took a classic mid-card title, divided it in half, and made two out of it, randomly claiming that it's as prestigious as it needs to be to be a triple crown title. This is just insanity to me. The last thing AEW needed was more titles even if it's going to be defended across three promotions. Now, please don't twist what I'm saying. I have zero doubt that the Continental Classic itself is going to straight up bang. And it started well enough on Wednesday, though there are some seriously notable names missing from the field, which just do not make this anywhere near as prestigious as the G1. For example, no Hangman Page or Kenny Omega. Now, that said, the matches are going to be high quality. It's just the back end part of all of this that really bothers me. So with that said, let's go over the two brackets. We'll talk about the matches and then we'll go through everything else. The first bracket is gold. It's going to be John Moxley, Swerve Strickland, Roosh, Mark Briscoe, Jay Lethal, and Jay White. This is an even bracket. You have three clear favorites in Mox, Swerve, and White, plus three others to largely do the jobs. Roosh will finish fourth, Briscoe fifth, and lethal six. The only question really is who's going to be one, two, and three. Then you have the blue bracket. Brian Danielson, Andrade El Idolo, Brody King, Claudio Castagnoli, Daniel Garcia, Eddie Kingston. This is a far more even bracket with Garcia really the only one who you would expect to be in the clear pin-taking role. Unless this is all a setup for him to go on like an epic run coming out of those three consecutive big match losses that we criticized last week one of which we will actually discuss later because he dropped the match to Miro. 
if those losses were to set up him winning this bracket or the entire tournament as a massive underdog, that would be some exciting booking. And it would really get Garcia over. That's the benefit of the round robin format. He can lose to Danielson, maybe even lose to a second person, but still beat everyone else and win. I just, I can't see them putting Garcia over Brian again, given that already happened. And Danielson also got his win back. But there's no reason he can't beat the others in this bracket. Brian is clearly the number one seed. Everyone else just kind of filters behind him, especially given King doesn't wrestle singles that much. You have Andrade, who's barely been on TV more recently, but barely in totality of his career in AEW. Then you have Claudio and Eddie, who have both had most of their single success since joining up here, actually in Ring of Honor, not in AEW. So really, you look at like who could win this, and unlike the gold where it's Mox, Swerve, and White, it will definitely be one of them. It seems like it's definitely going to be Danielson. But it is very possible that Garcia like pulls this underdog move and takes it. I just don't know that Tony Khan's going to book it that way. I'm simply pointing out it would be really exciting booking and it would make sense of those losses. Not that we were critical of him losing matches to more established veterans, more the fact that he just made three straight challenges, lost three straight matches. And the question is, what's next for him? How are they going to capitalize on that story? We don't know that. So we will see and find out. Maybe this fixes that. Maybe it does not. Let's get to the first three matches. Swerve Strickland against Jay Lethal in the gold division. This opened the show. Lethal hit a flying elbow after Swerve got a superplex, but Swerve came back with a house call and the Swerve stomp for the win. Simple, effective. The crowd was dancing for Swerve before and after the bell. He's clearly getting over like Rover right now. Didn't find this to be worth rating in terms of in-ring, which was surprising because I figured they would want to start the show with a pretty high work rate match. Roosh fought Jay White, also the gold division. Roosh had a couple brain busters. White came back with one himself. White countered Bull's horns with Blade Runner, which Roosh countered back. The referee got run into the corner, allowing White to hit a low blow and Blade Runner for the win. This was a strange match because I kept thinking it was going to start banging, but it never seemed to reach fourth gear. White was the obvious and correct winner coming out of the full gear loss, but it would have benefited him massively to be given the mic backstage so he could cut a promo reestablishing his character and stating his attempt to win the tournament and gain a title given he just lost one, the physical possession of one. A lot could have been accomplished by adding a promo before or after this match. Huge missed opportunity not doing that on TV. Mark Briscoe fought John Moxley, also in the gold division. This was the main event. Mark bladed at some point. Mox caught him flying with a paradigm shift, which he completely no-sold into a dropkick that Mox sold more than the paradigm shift. Briscoe hit a Death Valley driver in Froggy Bow for a false finish. Mox countered Jay Driller with a Lariat and Death Rider for a 2.9 false finish. Great timing, but ridiculous kick out. Mox eventually came back with a stomp and a second Death Rider for the 1-2-3. I remain extremely interested how Mox and uh, Buddy Matthews both do the stomp for Seth Rollins. It's so interesting. This was the main event. It was easily the best match on the entire show, even if I disliked the no-sell finisher kick out in an opening match. All three favorites in the gold bracket got their wins. You can argue it would have been more interesting creatively for there to be at least one upset, kind of to sell the fans on the anything can happen nature of the tournament. But I was fine with all these three winning. Two other items on the tournament. One, I'm sure you all want me to address the comments that Tony Khan made in that full gear scrum where he basically told fans, put your fucking money where your mouth is about watching this tournament. I want to see what happens on collision and Rampage before I respond to that, because I do have an opinion of that statement from him coming out of Dynamite, 
but I want to make sure it holds and it wouldn't be fair to just immediately criticize, which I think you have a feeling that's where I was going to go, immediately criticize him without seeing like how at least most of the first round goes. So I'd like to see that first. There's something else I want to cover that's adjacent to this tournament because it's a news item involving Danielson. So apparently Brie Garcia told ESPN that Brian has been working with a broken orbital bone for a period of time, but didn't address it until basically his nose and face went numb. And I just want to remind of something that I said back when Danielson left WWE for AEW. My number one concern for him was AEW's style and its lack of protections for wrestlers. That's not to say they don't have medical, but rather WWE has so many levels of clearance and protection in place that for a guy who had returned after serious concussions that were thought to be career ending and life affecting, I thought it was best for him to remain in WWE for his health. There's no doubt that Danielson has put on some incredible matches in AEW. I love that he gets to be his authentic self as a character, including the cursing, the violence, and all of that. He's clearly having fun. It's exactly where he wants to be. But we cannot dismiss what's happened to him from an injury perspective since he's joined AEW. It's constant. And it's included multiple concussions along with multiple broken bones. Point being, I think my take has been proven out. And more than anything else, I just really hope Brian protects himself on this final full-time run. So let's go ahead and talk now about Dynamite Collision and Rampage beyond what we already talked about. On Dynamite, MJF and Adam Cole entered together with MJF using a cane. They also did their pose sitting down, which was pretty funny. MJF bragged about beating Jay with one leg. Then he put him over as one of the best in the world, but said he's the greatest of all time. Cole said he's nowhere close to being able to walk, let alone wrestle, but he'll continue rehabbing hard. But he also said he's concerned about MJF dealing with two titles, all the people coming after those titles, the devil and the minions. The lights went out and the devil popped on screen laughing for five seconds. That was it. Then Samoa Joe entered to ensure MJF would honor his agreement. MJF responded, blow me, I believe, which was bleeped. Joe went after him, but Cole refused to let him go back on his word because that was the old Max. So MJF went from denying him to making a crack about beating another former ROH champion twice, referring to CM Punk in Chicago, and wanting to fight right away. Joe refused because he wants MJF at 100%, so he has no excuses at world's end. The crowd got hot that he put over Long Island. MJF dropped a meh, like supposed to be edgy line using the term getting head, and Joe made it clear that he'd have his back all the way until world's end, that way no one could touch him. Between MJF trying to throw quips that TBS had to bleep, which happened like 10 times, and the heavy effort babyface stuff, his segments have largely taken a turn for me from can't miss to just generally solid. Joe was the star here, and the way it was built did make it feel as if Joe has a chance. How much of a chance, we'll find out as the storyline continues. Given how many times MJF has defended the title recently, waiting five or six weeks for this match when one would think that they would have a more interesting challenger set for the pay-per-view, that was surprising. It's also a shocker because they just had this match at Grand Slam in Queens, which is 45 minutes away from Long Island. So the market already saw this title match just a couple months ago. And then as the main event for a pay-per-view, I can't see that being too enticing for them. You gotta assume that will lead to the devil reveal coming in Long Island for maximum heat after MJF defends. That's the only way this makes sense. And there's no doubt in my mind that AEW on Wednesday 
was hinting and at least wanting us to believe it's Adam Cole. He was in the corner of the screen when MJF was addressing the devil, coming out of his actions at full gear with weapons. On Dynamite, he basically guilt-tripped MJF into putting the title on the line against a super dangerous man. But how was the devil on screen while they were both in the ring? Well, the laugh was distorted. Easily could have been Britt Baker in the mask with them doing like a double heel turn as a couple. Because we've seen MJF and Cole spending so much time together as best friends. And we've seen Strong be a jilted lover. But what about, you know, his actual lover? Wouldn't you think that she's actually Cole's best friend? Britt being the one either pulling the strings or going along with Cole and helping him, again, his true best friend, makes so much sense. Another reason this could work is that Cole beat Joe in NXT, yet Cole lost to MJF already in AEW. So Cole costing MJF the title with it going to Joe would presumably put him in better position to become AEW champion because he knows he can beat him. I'm not saying Cole is the devil. I'm saying that's what we were being led to believe at least over the last week or so. Cole later said he was excited to get rehabilitated and was supportive of MJF sticking to his word. Strong asked why Cole didn't have his back over the weekend. Cole snapped that Strong needs to realize they're not best friends anymore and he should get off his back. Then he stormed away and Strong sat there kind of stewing in his wheelchair. About time he snapped on him, but we'll see where this goes. What Strong was referring to was he got into a confrontation with Action Andretti on collision and then beat him on Rampage. Action was pretty game in the match with some nice moves. They tried a running Spanish fly. Strong never got air and legit had one of the nastiest landings I have seen in quite some time fully on his head, like his temple and his dome. The match paused. He got checked by a trainer, but they just let it fucking continue. He had a pump knee and totally missed end of heartache for the win. I am not sure how someone can be cleared that quickly after taking a bump that bad. It was not necessary to continue that match. Call it a no contest. Move on. On collision, Wardlow destroyed a jobber with a powerbomb, swanton bomb, and a last ride powerbomb for a referee stoppage. I gotta say, he looks so much worse with the puffy hair that he has now. The long hair, the short hair were both way better. On Dynamite, he said he'd be responsible for MJF's downfall. AR Fox interrupted for some reason, only to take a headbutt like a jobber. He sold a cracked jaw or something, but I'm pretty sure he got hit in the forehead. Whatever. On Dynamite, Tony Storm had the AEW Women's Championship presented to her like an Oscar award, where she came out of the crowd to accept on stage, and Mariah May was the model holding the title. Tony got what chance during this ridiculous speech, which I thought meant the crowd was turning on the gimmick. But then they cheered at the end and she kind of pranced around with the title. So I do think the timeless deal is over, but the way it plays to me is that it works as a gimmick and a concept, just not really in extended segments. In other words, the look and the character completely work, but no one wants to hear Tony cut like old Hollywood promos. And that's fine, make some tweaks. I thought this was pretty smart leaning into the Hollywood awards deal, given she just won the title, and it was extremely well executed from a production standpoint, no doubt about it. On Collision, Trent Beretta, Brian Cage, Penta El Zero Miedo, and Commander had a match. The best move was Penta rolling through Cage only to flip up and hit a Canadian Destroyer on Commander. Then he caught Trent with Made in Japan. Trent avoided the tightrope 450, coming back with Strong Zero on Commander for the win. Obvious winner and an expected match. And I forgot to mention, this was randomly a number one contendership for the TNT title, which Christian defended like an hour later on Rampage. Trent hit strong zero for a 2.9 false finish. Luchasaurus distracted, giving Cage an opening to stomp on Beretta's neck. He has spinal stenosis before hitting kill switch to retain the title. It was immensely unfortunate to me that AEW spent time on these matches 
on pay-per-view go-home shows. I thought that was ridiculous. On Dynamite, the patriarchy hit the ring with Christian Cage receiving what chance? This was promoted as a re-Christianing. He admitted Full Gear did not go their way, but put the loss squarely on Luchasaurus' shoulders. Christian called them his children and wanted to rebuild them in his image. He had to scream at Luchasaurus to take a knee, saying his name was associated with losing, and he would now be known as his finisher, Killswitch. Nick took a knee before being told that he should, with Christian demanding he get up because he's special, he's his golden boy, and he doesn't get on his knees for anyone. Nick got all excited, then Cage deemed him the prodigy Nick Wayne. Yeah, I have something to say about that. That led his mom down, who I guess just happened to be backstage in Chicago, despite them living in Seattle. So Christian tore her and Buddy Wayne down, saying she could have been with them but lost her opportunity. He started talking more shit to her when suddenly Luchasaurus rose from his knees and got between them, protecting her, shaking his head. Christian slapped him, demanded he back down or he'd remove the mask and expose him. Then he pushed Luchasaurus backwards into Wayne's mom, who I think legit took an elbow to the face. Then Christian prepared for concerto to her, pausing to make Luchasaurus do it. He took about an hour holding the chair until production finally hit Adam Copeland's music. He made the save. He speared Wayne, kicked Luchasaurus. Luchasaurus then saved Christian. Then Copeland speared Wayne a second time and hit an Impaler DDT and a concerto right in front of Wayne's mom who was pleading for him not to do it. So look, this was a good idea for a segment that struggled massively with execution starting with the way the beginning transpired all the way through Luchasaurus, twice standing up to Christian, only to not prepare to do his dirty work, but then actually save him at the end. Then you had Nick get killed in front of his mom, who again was there for no reason, with Copeland pulling the trigger, even though he's a father of two young girls. Commentary explained, well, clearly Copeland saw red and didn't notice her there. She's the entire reason he ran out to make the save in the first place. He saved her from taking a concerto. He knew she was there. That does not track at all. This was all over the place. The cherry on top of the shit Sunday was Nick being called the Prodigy, which is a nickname that Roxanne Perez has used for years, well before she was even in WWE. In fact, Tony Khan has footage of her in Ring of Honor as the Prodigy Roxy. What if Baron Corbin just started calling himself the rated R superstar? This is not an AEW WWE thing. This is gimmick infringement on a prominent wrestler. Everyone should be better than that. So the idea of Christianing them, again, I thought that was cool. It was a good idea. But this went down like a wet fart, including the mom randomly showing up whenever a little extra heat is needed and a stolen nickname to cap off the entire deal. The way this could have been more interesting is if she actually joined them. And then after joining them, slowly tried to chip away at Christian's influence over Luchasaurus, make him turn, which could then lead to them eventually convincing Nick to turn away from him too. That's how you take something like this and you make it really interesting. It's gonna be real bad if Nick is back on TV in the next two weeks and doesn't actually sell the concerto, which we've seen before. He should be out for an extended period. Two spears, an Impaler DDT and a concerto. I guess we'll find out. On Collision, Don Callis backstage bragged about powerhouse Hobbs' body slam of Paul White. Hobbs then said he's big, he's black, and he's jacked, promising that anyone can get it. It's probably the best presentation of Hobbs in three years. I wonder if Callis deserves the credit or if it's something else from the creative team. On Dynamite, we learned that Chris Jericho was attacked by Ricky Starks and Big Bill backstage after full gear once he confronted them during a media scrum. 
This because Jericho and Kenny Omega are now number one contenders. They injured Jericho's arm, which means their match won't be coming for a good while, one would presume. I'm guessing it's just holiday time off until world's end. On Collision, Miro fought Daniel Garcia. Let me start with a correction from last week. I said last week it made no sense why Miro challenged Garcia instead of Andrade, because he's the one who's now a client of Hot and Flexible. And while I stand by that being the proper storyline continuation, I missed that Garcia did his dance in front of Hot and Flexible last week, so he disrespected her. So now it makes sense why Miro wanted to fight him. I retract my criticism, though again, it's still not parallel to the story that they had been telling, which would have Miro going against Andrade. Anyway, Garcia had Miro prone, but prepared to start dancing, so Daddy Magic ran down to stop him. Miro easily powered out of a crossface, but as Garcia sat back on a sharpshooter, Miro slammed his head into the canvas and soon beat him with a game over and winning via knockout, I think it was. Solid job booking Garcia to look decently strong, though again, as I said earlier, the guy has now lost three straight matches to top competitors. Andrade was with Hot and Flexible backstage. She called him the best wrestler and wrestling royalty, announcing that she entered him into the Continental Classic. Andrade was angered by this news, uh, even as Hot and Flexible said he would get paid more money. Then she whispered something to him and he was suddenly okay with it. Can't say much about it because I don't know what she whispered to him, but I did like that Andrade wasn't immediately accepting of it. On Collision, Chris Statlander and Hikaru Shida fought the outcast. Angelo Parker watched from the crowd. Shida and Soraya did a simultaneous crossbody. Soraya then hit Rampage for a broken fall as Parker helped Soho at ringside. That drew her ire. Stat laid out Parker with Lariat and Shida beat Soraya with a katana. I remain liking this Soho Parker storyline and I'm down for babyface Ruby to happen with the outcast finally dissolving, but this wasn't great despite some talented women all in the ring together. It was surprisingly clunky. On Dynamite, Ruby Soho fought Sky Blue and Anna Jay in a triple threat. The old JAS all argued backstage with Anna cutting them off, basically saying they're so up their asses, they need to focus on wrestling and they need to focus on her wrestling and supporting her. Then she wondered whether Parker had her back given she's fighting Soho. Sky entered as Tony was exiting earlier and got a glare. Soraya and Magic kept the lovebirds apart during the match. Anna countered Code Blue. Sky then delivered the worst knee strikes I've ever seen, plus a totally missed boot to Ruby, who fell outside into Parker's arms. With all the heels distracted, Sky took Anna down with a cutter, and Ruby was late trying to break the fall with Blue taking the win. This was telegraphed completely by the storm interruption that preceded the match. And Blue's big win was completely overshadowed by the antics of everyone else. And even commentary was distracted. They're like, oh yeah, Sky Blue has won. Let's look at Angelo Parker and Ruby Soho and Soraya and Daddy Magic. Right? They all hate each other. This was mediocre at best overall. And lastly, on Dynamite, Orange Cassidy Hook and Katsuyori Shibata fought 2.0 and Jake Hager. Wheeler Yuta stormed into an interview and just talked a bunch of shit. Orange said he had an announcement, but apparently they were out of time. Then before the match, he announced a surprise, which was the return of Danhausen. He put on the purple hat and cursed Hager, who took an orange punch from Cassidy. Then Hook and Shibata exchanged dudes that they were submitting so Hook could submit Angelo Parker, the legal man, to win via submission. This kind of made me hate my life. I'm not against fun, but this was a massive eye roll for me. So folks, look, that was everything across AEW this week. And as mentioned earlier, everything from NXT as well. Usually I'd give you a whole wrap up here to conclude the podcast, but I am late for Thanksgiving dinner. So let me quickly remind you, coming out the back of this show, that the Getting Over Wrestling podcast is all about 
Defy. Please say thank you and leave some five-star ratings for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify on Apple. Take a little extra time. Be extra thankful. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news analysis highlights, all of that good stuff. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up. You will get bonus audio. You will get exclusive news and much more. Buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Here at Getting Over, we still have one more podcast for you this week. That will be our 2023 WWE Survivor Series War Games! Instant analysis Saturday night as soon as that show goes off the air. If you have not heard it already, be sure to check our podcast archive and hit up our WWE Survivor Series War Games! Ultimate Preview, where we break down every single match on the card with predictions. So again, Ultimate Preview is waiting for you. If you haven't heard it yet, Instant Analysis coming Saturday. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. That way you can vote in the pre and post show polls. And if you are a first time listener, hit that subscribe button so you become full time Getting Over listener. I appreciate all of you listening to today's show. I hope everyone in the United States has a happy Thanksgiving and everyone else around the world has a great holiday season. This is the Silver King signing off, leaving you with just three final words. Bye for now.